if you haven't signed up for Discord, our major domain media Discord channel, and you're tired of me talking about it all the time, just do it. We have a great community. I promise you're going to love it. Great insights, great opinions. Sometimes I don't always agree with them. Actually, oftentimes I don't always agree with them. But that's what makes it fun. As we like to say here at Major Demo, uh, our Discord and what we're trying to do is help you live your life a little bit more deliciously. Great insights about what to cook at home, how to consume culture, where to eat, what to eat. And yeah, thank you very much for all of your support in Discord. And if you don't care about such things, but you like buying shit, we have great discount codes with our partners at Athletic Brewing, Cometeer Coffee, and Any Day East Fork Pottery. We should probably put up a, a code for Adam Field Pottery as well. And of course, all things Momofuku. Thank you so much for all your support, guys. The entire team at Momofuku is grateful. All of our pantry items, your salts, your spices, your soy, the tamaris, our chili crunch, our instant noodles, the air-dried noodles. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, available nationwide at places like Whole Foods and Target and more than likely one of your, your, your favorite supermarket or grocery store. We are growing in locations and um, we have a lot of things in the pipeline. And I have kept secret, which is a surprise for me, a couple things that are going to come out very soon, very excited about, and we'll talk about that later in episodes to come. Anyway, let's get on to the show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. I am recording this solo at the Major Domo Studios. I recorded something earlier today by myself, without Chris Yang, and I just wanted to redo it. In fact, do the whole thing over again. I was discombobulated. I was missing my friend. I've done a bunch of solo pods before, but I wanted to give it a shot again for a bunch of reasons, one of which... We are really busy, and Chris has a lot on his plate creatively, TV shows and books, et cetera, et cetera, and we are reorganizing a bunch of things, and I promise you, you're going to see a lot of Chris, definitely on Recipe Club. You're going to see him a lot on this show, weekly. I think we're just trying to carve out two to three hours where he doesn't have to do this, and we're going to replace him, not ever replace Chris, but we'll have different guests on, get a different cadence going. The only constant with this show is change. And yes, I know some of you guys are definitely going to be upset that Chris isn't on this podcast, but you're not going to miss him too long. So that's just the way it is. Anyway, I recorded it and I thought it was total fucking shit. In my mind, more shitty than normal. And I wanted to redo it. Man, I, I have a hard time recording by myself, and I'm going to give this a shot. Because for me, I need to see somebody. I need reactions to something. It also helps with my pacing. And what Chris does at the, for the pod is not to, we're not losing him. I just, again, if you're missing Chris, he'll be back. He's going to be back probably for the next month or two, only be on one of the pods a week since we're bi-weekly publishing. But just wanted to explain that. And if you're watching this on Spotify, there might be moments where I look like I'm in a different location. It's because I am. We recorded a podcast interview with Brian Kobelman, the great screenwriter, director, producer of things like Rounders and Billions. And we didn't get him on the show to talk about that. 
although we do a little bit of a so you want to be a screenwriter at the end of the interview, but we wanted to pick Brian's brain about where to eat, what to eat, and the culinary zeitgeist of New York City. He has been a longtime resident, and I joke, not joke, it's not really a joke because it's true. He's like one of the patron saints of dining in New York City. So we're doing a atlas to some degree with him. And I I want to explain a little bit more why I, I want people's opinions, which ties into our sort of running series about finding the best thing to eat next door to the restaurant, you know, the most essential, crunchy, sexiest, blah, blah, blah restaurant. I can't remember that phrase anymore. Anyway, uh, I wanted to talk about a few things that are sort of non-essential, non-important, but on, on my mind, and then get into the interview with Brian and then, you know, see what else is there. Maybe a word of the day that we didn't get into. So the other day, we were at the studio and there was a bottle of wine with about, you know, most of it gone. I would say a glass left in the bottle of white wine and we had one beer. We had to split it. Because everything else was closed, we're filming quite late, and I got out four glasses of ice. I poured the wine into the glasses of ice, and I poured the beer, and I split the beer into two glasses over ice. As much as I talk about drinking wine and beer over ice, every time I do it, I feel like I've done something horribly fucking wrong. It's hot. It's hot all over the country, and... With global warming, who knows? It may be hot all the fucking time moving forward. If you, I'm just constantly surprised and shocked that more people don't do it. So this is just my impassioned plea. Take a crappy bottle of wine, preferably white, and a beer of any sort that isn't a a dark stout of sorts and just drink it over ice. If you're in Asia, this is how it's done in the summer times. I want people to enjoy their maximum hydration and refreshment and drinking wine with ice. It tastes like fucking gold. It really does. It's so goddamn delicious. I look forward to doing it. And man, I know the team at Athletic Brewing may not appreciate this, but I drink it all on ice right now, especially the Rattler. I love drinking beer on ice. It is so fucking refreshing. And I don't want to just do it anymore. I basically just want to come in the closet. I don't want to drink it just in the summertime. I want to do it year round. I ask for ice water all the time, even in the winter. So I just want to drink it year round. And don't judge me. In fact, I might judge you for not drinking it on ice. If you haven't given it a shot, just try it. And for all the beer nerds and wine nerds, don't freak out. Right, The reason you're drinking it is not for the culinary snobbery and elitism. It's because it's a fucking beverage. right? So drink it as a beverage, not as a cultural artifact that needs to be, you know, just, I, I don't even know what else to say. I, hate, I actually hate that part of beverage culture, wine and beer and coffee culture, the, the snobbery involved with it. Um, and actually, I'm the worst fucking snob of all, right? Because I like the very best and the very worst. So... That's all. It's just my PSA. Take a fucking bottle of wine, any can of beer, bottle of beer, crack it open and pour it over some ice. Thank me later. And if you are drinking it too slow, it's okay too. If it's watered down a little bit, 
That's okay. You know what else I did? I made a wine spritzer. A wine spritzer. It was fabulous. You know what's underrated? Wine spritzers. It's just a little bit of effervescence because you're diluting the, you know, the, the, the soda water with the wine and the ice. But man, like, so good. It's so refreshing. It's like, I mean, it's like when you're a kid and you had like Kool-Aid or Gatorade for, on a hot day. That's what it feels like to me as an adult. Almost just tastes like plain old grape juice. So it's hot outside. It's hot as hell on the East Coast. Do yourself a favor. You've earned the right to drink your beverage on ice. And let's just start this trend. Let's do it for real. More drinking on ice. That's my, um, that's my spiel on that. The other thing is just a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> I was giving my friend a bunch of shit. My friend is a chef of note, and he has the title Chef John Doe. I'm like, dude, it's time to drop the name Chef in your name. You have several hundred thousand followers. People know who the fuck you are. You don't have to tell everyone you're a chef. People know. All right. It's 2023. We've had many years of social media. I understand if you just started out 15, 10 years ago, you might want to let people know that, hey, I'm a little different. I don't have a corporate job. I'm a fucking chef. Cool. But you don't need to do it now. I also understand if you're just starting out today and you want to make yourself known, you can call yourself a chef. But man, the word chef has been so bastardized today, right? And again, celebrity chef is pretty appropriate title now as much as I hate it. So yes, I'm making fun of my friend. Yes, many of my friends have chef in their Instagram and Twitter and thread handles and TikTok handles. I just don't think you need it. You really don't need it. If you're taking photos of food, if you're showing everybody breaking down a fish and then the composed dish you're making later, or you're, everything is food, people are going to know you're a fucking chef. You don't have to tell anybody you're a fucking chef, okay? Just drop it. Go on your account and erase the word chef in front of your name. It's going to be liberating. Trust me. You're going to thank me later, all right? And the last thing is sort of a prediction. Before we get into the podcast with Brian, I think pop-ups, not a surprise. A lot of people have been talking about pop-ups, but I, I think more and more restaurants, I mean, Momofugo was doing a pop-up with Co this year, but I think pop-ups might become a permanent thing where we're driving that, that FOMO factor, that experiential dining that is so ephemeral that you can charge a premium and people want. And I'm not sure exactly how, but you're going to start to see extremely talented chefs that have all the accolades in the world start to do pop-ups. Listen, our good friend Renee Redzepi and the team at Noma have done this sort of like, they've written the, 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 the blueprint about how to do this. And I think that's going to be more of the norm. Going to another country or another place in America and setting up shop and having an end date on your pop-up. There's something about that time crunch where it's going to go away that is so infectious. People want it. They have to have it. It's an experience they have to collect. And I think because of that, I think somehow I haven't done the numbers yet. I really haven't. But I think with a pop-up, you, you can get 
help financially, marketers, advertisers, whatever. But you can also probably charge more on a space that, you know, is much cheaper than going in a fully functional permanent location. And there are great, great restaurants. There are great, great concepts and there's amazing teams that move on this trajectory. It's almost like a game, right? They, they do a food truck, then they do pop-ups and they build a following and then they open up their own restaurant. That's sort of the normal trajectory. And that's not going away. But again, I hope I'm describing it better. I think pop-ups become something that is of the provenance for the super well-established chef, right? Who? I don't know, right? But clearly, the Noma team have done a remarkable job doing it. And I think that's going to happen more and more. It's not just going to be collaboration dinners, but teams going somewhere else, taking it on the road, and having something that has a firm end date. And I think you can potentially make that more profitable. I think logistically, it's a hard thing to do. But there's something about this growing trend, in my opinion, about short-term events, short-term leases. And it may not be a pop-up in the traditional sense, but there's a lot of empty spaces still. I do think that one of the things that's going to happen with all the empty office space, this is my real prediction here, this is where a lot of these pop-ups are going to take place. If you read the newspapers, whether you're in San Francisco or New York or any urban center where there was a lot of sort of leased office space, it's completely fucking vacant. We've talked about this before the pandemic, that the only way that restaurant culture can sort of expand in a place like New York City, because it's so cost prohibitive to open up a place on a corner in a good location, in downtown Manhattan, for example, is up or down. And it's going to be in places that you don't necessarily expect dining to be good. All you have to do is look at Asia, Seoul, particularly Tokyo, where some of the best restaurants and the best eating in the world is in like the 45th floor of an office building or the fifth level of a basement in a subway station. So a lot of these pop-ups are going to be the, 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 the first wave phase for filling a lot of this used space. And I'm excited for that. I, I am optimistic that you're going to have a lot of new generation talent doing some super cool things because that's what we need. We personally need more progressive cooking in my, in my opinion. We need more people pushing the envelope, doing the vanguard shit. And right now, clearly because of what we were coming out of, we're, we're really in the comfort phase. And we may be in the comfort phase for quite some time. So, you know, I wasn't always a fan of pop-ups because I think it's really hard to execute. But if I was just starting out, and let's just say I worked at a bunch of restaurants and I have a good CV Instead of doing a physical location and trying to raise money for that, because I'm still a little worried about the economy. I'm still worried for my friends that are trying to raise money to build an expensive restaurant. And a cheap restaurant right now, say in New York, I know it's going for like 1.25, 1.5 million. That's a ton of money to fucking raise. Again, let me just stress, you should buy the, you should buy the property. You should probably open up a restaurant where you can actually get money to invest in the land first before opening up the restaurant and being your own tenant. That's something that I wish I did. Anyway, pop-ups are hard, but I think it's not anything new here. Pop-ups have been around and they have been 
a, a form of culinary expression for many years now. But all I'm going to say is we're going to see a lot more of it. And that is going to be the first wave into getting office space that's vacant into cool culinary destinations. So I'm excited about that. I can't guarantee that's going to happen, but listen, it either turns into affordable housing, which as much as I'd love that to happen, I just don't think government officials and city officials will allow that to happen, as cool as that might be in landlords, particularly landlords. But I think that it could be cheaper real estate for culinary projects. Anyway, I want to talk about one more thing before we get into our podcast with Brian. And it's something that we, we touch upon, and that's identifying talent. And one of the reasons we talk about it with Brian is he was a music A&R executive. His job was to scour the bars all over the world and find the next great band, next great recording artist. In a lot of ways, that's what Brian is still doing now. You know, not as his role as a, a premier screenwriter, director, producer of media content and film and television. But he's been that for restaurants and chefs. He's been very good at identifying talent. In fact, I think he was one of the very first people to like earmark Momofuku. And in fact, I'd probably say without Brian's help, I don't know if Momofuku would be as successful today or if we'd even be around. And that's not hyperbole. Brian introduced Momofuku to his father. His father introduced it to Martha Stewart. And Martha Stewart became someone that was very close to me and in a lot of ways mentored and promoted me on her show and introduced Momofuku to a whole new audience. And I don't know if that would have happened if Brian didn't take some, um, some, some delicious moments in his life as one of the early supporters of Momofuku. And he really is this patron saint of dining in New York. He goes out to eat. And one of the things I wanted to talk about just on the culinary point of view is in your kitchen right now, if you're listening as a chef, you may look at your line, you may look at the, you know, somebody that's having a hard time learning the hotline or is stuck on garmage or is someone that's an extern, and you may think of themselves as, wow, they suck. I've been there, we've all been there. You have to ask why they suck. Of course, they're going to suck if they are new to this. Again, I can't stress how many times I've been guilty of trying to judge talent because they look that way. They, they have a feeling like they're going to be successful. They look the part. They act the part. But that does not mean they're going to be successful. That does not mean it's an indicator of success. I have found more often than not the person or cook that struggles, that doesn't know exactly what the fuck to do. And it doesn't come naturally to them. And I'm not just projecting myself because clearly I fit that mold myself. But it's not just me. It's a pattern that I've seen time and time again. When you look at Food and Wine Best New Chefs, if you see the people that are winning awards, the next generation, there's a good chance they weren't the number one chef in their group. They're the, the most talented number one draft pick, you know, metaphorically speaking, in their kitchen. All right? I'm not saying you can't because being a great technician and being a, 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 a super smooth, making everything soigné cook, listen, like that's natural. God-given talent. And very few people, in my opinion, match that with the care and the earnestness and, and the knowledge that they acquire to become great. But I don't know why. More often than not, if you find out and if you do your homework, the people that are now the next generation and have historically been, have been sort of the outcast, the runt of the litter, person that wasn't the best. Again, that's not to say that the best don't become great. 
but I think the the percentage of cooks that were rated lowly and didn't have really a bright prospect, they're not the ones you should count out. In fact, maybe you should almost bet that they have a higher percentage chance of being super successful than the one that is a super talented cook in your kitchen. And just stop and think about it. The people that have left your kitchens or the people you work with that have gone on to do good things, they've gotten a lot of press and accolades and recognition, more often than not, you probably thought they sucked. I'm just saying. Anyway, I could talk about this all night, all day. I don't want to do that. I don't want to bore you guys. I wanted to get into my conversation with Brian Kobelman because this is sort of a, our first atlas with a, a real person. He lives in New York City. I've known him forever. And I think in a lot of ways, it's cyclical. Before the internet, before technology changed how we consume culture, eat our foods, we needed these like oracles, these vetted individuals that gave great insights. They were the people that told you where to eat, what to eat, what was going to be great next. And a lot of that I feel like has been, I won't say diluted, but it's been washed out with all the white noise that's available, all the forms of information that you can get about food. And in some way, I think it's cyclical because what I want and what I think we need to start promoting are the people that have done the work, that are vetted, that know what the fuck is delicious. And I, I know without a shadow of a doubt that Brian is one of those individuals. And I wanted to get him to just sort of, you know, expounds on what he thinks is good and no surprise, because this is uh, from everybody's mouth, Tatiana and Teresi in New York. We joke that it's sort of like the Barbie hammer to restaurants that had great ambition and they executed on the promise and they're, they're deservedly reaping the rewards. It doesn't have to be a fancy restaurant. And that's what I love about Brian as a diner. He, he'll, he'll go anywhere that's tasty and delicious. And uh, I'm glad that he could join us and we'll have him on for about 30 minutes or so. And uh, we'll get you out of here. And this is a, this podcast is a work in progress, guys. It always has been. It's not easy to do a solo podcast. So, you know, we're, we're pretty close to where we want to be, but we still need to have Chris Yang working on some other things that are more of a priority than this show. And we're going to get more guests. And don't worry, Chris Yang is going to be on the next podcast. I feel like, feel, I feel good, and I'm also scared. Anyway, here's Brian. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else, like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit, where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to, though. But take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. 
This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Brian. It's been too long, and I would rather do this in person, but it is what it is. Thank you for joining us today. Dude, I'm so happy to see you right now. I mean, this is, yeah, I I love, you know, I love you. It's great to see you. Like, it's yeah, it's been, it's absurd. It's been too long. You know, you and Grace were so good to us when we were stuck out there for six months working, and you really opened your home to us and, and had us over and treated us like family men and, like, you know. Met the world. And, and I want people to know before we get into the conversation, and I, I, I just did something for a Martha Stewart doc. And I was like, you know, what's funny is she's probably instrumental, really instrumental in the success of the early days of Momofuku. And that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but little do people know that Brian's father, Charles, was one of the great executives in, in America and ran uh, on the media. And this all happened because in 2004, when we were really struggling, and Brian knows we were struggling, there were many days we'd be dead empty, but Brian would be coming in religiously. He was, and this is probably going to get some other people in our universe upset. He was our first regular, legitimately our first regular. And you told your dad. Your dad told told Martha. Martha. Yeah. Yeah. And I called Martha with him. I was like, we got to call Martha because I didn't know her really. And I was like, but we got to call her because this thing is so incredible, you know. And uh, yeah, I'm so look, man. The longer you live, the more, you know, people who have the goods are going to find their way. But if I, you know, all of us who came in, it's funny when you tell the story and we all do this, we the way we because we all remember how rough it was uh, ourselves. Right. But, you know, when people did, like when your people found you, they did become fanatical. That was the thing. Like, right. I mean, even when you say, I know that there were these dips along the way. But don't you think that when people locked in, they were like telling, I mean, that's what happened, right? They told their four people Mm -hmm. who would get it. Well, we started treating it. I started treating it like we're building a a religion to some degree, right? Or like a, a band, right? deadheads to some degree, right? Not for everybody, but if you're in it, you're really in it. And it, 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 it worked somehow. Really, it worked because we were getting a lot of feedback and support from people like you who became a close friend of mine. And I, I have to say that there are people in at Los Angeles that are like the patron saints of uh, dining in their specific cities. But I don't know if you get enough credit for being one of the great diner slash gourmands of New York City. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for saying it. And yeah, I, I was just literally talking about this with Brian again last night. I was talking about why, how you, so Momofuku became the North Star of that, right? Because before that restaurant, I was definitely somebody who loved to go and and go to restaurants. And I knew like, you know, the guys at Chin Chin, not L.A. Chin Chin. Like, I knew the guys who were at, like, 
these restaurants that I just liked and that were kind of the places that I found myself going to. But it was Momofuku when everything kind of exploded for me. And I was like, the, the, the New York food world just turned on its head. I don't live in New York anymore. I rarely visit it, actually, as much as I thought I would. But even if I'm there, I'm not plugged in like I used to be. And I want to be able to create this sort of like atlas, whether it's you in New York or anyone else in their respective cities, to give real information to people because everyone has these lists, but they become commoditized and everyone knows where to go. Or if they go there, they're not going with a specific purpose as to, oh, this is what I need to discover. And I don't think it's coming from reviews anymore, right? And that's just my opinion. So I want to talk to the people that are eating the eating like this delicious stuff. Like where are the restaurants right now that are making New York City like buzz for you? I mean, your friend, I told you when I was in LA, I think the last time I saw you there or maybe the time before I said, I just had like the best thing of the whole year. And it was that that thing that Kwame cooked me at his house where he cooked me um, goat curry at his house in LA. And um, I remember calling you afterwards or texting you going like, this kid is the real deal. And you were like, yeah, man, I, I know him since he was very young. And like, have you come in and gone to Tatiana yet? No, I, I haven't. I, I mean, it's, like I haven't been yet and it's getting all the praise and all the de deservedly. So it's, it's not your bullshit. It's not bullshit. Like this is the thing. I went night. I went the second night he was open, and prepared to be like, "Look, it's a huge stage, um, and it's a really hard thing to pull off." And Kwame's young, and there are a lot of distractions in New York. Why? Why was and it a hard I, thing to pull off because of the location? Because he's at Lincoln, right? For the so you know, I mean, you know why he's at Lincoln. Well, first of all, it's amazing, right? He used to literally sell candy in front of Lincoln Center. But like out of a cart to try to like have money to get through life when he was young. Well, because it's like in Lincoln Center, the sort of first of all, the Upper West Side is really hard to make a restaurant work. Second of all, it's at the most sort of highbrow, elitist place, stayed like fancy. Even Lincoln is still you feel like it's one of the few places you feel like, God, I got to not wear jeans. You know what I mean? And then. Kwame decides that he's going to open there um, in this new space in Geffen Hall. And he's serving. I mean, you know, there are echoes of what you did because he's just making the food that he thinks is amazing. And it's not something you're going to see on many other menus in, in New York. And I, we went in there and look, it's almost unfair to talk about because it's like the hardest. There were a couple of um, weeks I know like we're last month, the month before where it was in the whole United States, the hardest reservation on Resi to get, but it's worth waiting. Like go put yourself the month that it opens up, like taking from the co world to co get yourself on the waiting list and get the goat patties. Like there's okay. People always take pictures of various dishes. I'm just going to tell you this. And I've had a lot of people thank me for just this, get the goat patties and get the oxtail and get the pure, pure salad, which cuts through all that umami, umami heaviness. And then do whatever else you want, but you got to get those things. Dave, you'll be so proud of the kid. I, you'll get it. It's like, it's so, and I call him a kid. He's 32 years old and I'm 57. So he, he's just, the people who are in their 30s are kids to me still. But he's just incredible. And he's a brilliant guy, right? Great writer, all that stuff. But so I just say, if you can go to Tatiana, go. And then the other, which I know you know too, man, 
your buddy Rich, he really did like for a uh, sort of, you know, expensive, super high end Italian restaurant. I know, you know, like Rich is obsessed. Like he won't do anything else. So Teresi, he, you know, he's not going to let it go into, has he told you? He won't let it become, he won't open a second Teresi. He is determined never to do it. He will, he, this is what he does. He is there and he's there like every night. I know. He's like on the pass every night. It's great. You haven't, you haven't come and gone. You haven't I, no, to I haven't. I haven't gone. I, I've been in New York. Maybe like when I'm there now, this is the difference. I'm there for a day and I'm back, you know, because of the kids. Like I, I'm not, of I'm not doing what of I course. used to do. Oh, of course. So though I would say like from the high end perspective, those two restaurants are kind of like the hype is justified. Like they're really amazing. If you like, if you like that kind of high end Italian food, Rich is deter- he's an obsessed fanatic. Um, we have. I mean, you know, I mean, I was one of the great food memories of my life is being with you a week before the grill opened when you and I went and had dinner there with Dave Levine. And then we went in the back and you told those guys what you would change and watching you interact with Rich Mario and Jeff and watching every all of you guys and all your history. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I was talking to Wiley a little while ago about diners and like Joe Jr. is still amazing. Like if you want to go like, you know, I got, I've gotten sandwiches from S and P. I haven't gone there a lot, but like Joe Jr. If you want to go to a diner and see a New York diner, there's basically like one left and it's Joe Jr. And go get an omelet there. That's a great thing. I still think you can get an incredible meal at Via Carota, um, on a, but I would go on a lunch. Like this is the thing I'm past hip. Like what you're talking about. I'm way past dealing with things that are like, other than yes, Tatiana and Teresi are of the moment, but generally, like I want to know if I'm going to go and take the trouble to go now. I want to know that like it's going to be great. Mm. And via Corona at lunch, you can get a table, go early, and like figure out what feel like I I went there alone today for lunch early. I didn't call anybody. I got no special treatment. I just showed up alone. I was writing something by hand and I was like, Oh, and I just went there and I got like, they had clams with kind of like, um, this, um, like the kind of bread you'd put 
make bruschetta out of. And it was just like this bread soaked in like the lemon and oil and clams. And I was like, well, that's the best thing I'll eat this month. It was just incredible, you know. Um, and then there are a couple places you might not know about. If you want me to touch, like uh, Thai Diner. Have you gone to Thai Diner? Uh, you know, I still haven't. I, I still haven't. So you'd really enjoy it. Like, obviously, that's the, okay. So I was in Thai Diner last night. Um, and that's why we started talking about you because I was like, this is not, this is because of Dave. Like, this and Uncle Boo, all those places. It's like the way stuff just gets passed down. It's generations later, and maybe they don't even know. But Momofuku and Sambar, Noodle Bar and Sambar led to there being a place with, like, the vibe, feeling, and just total deliciousness of Thai diner. Like, I, I got to say, like, I, I loved it. Also, the other day, which you'll love, I went to Hop Key for the first time oh, wow. in forever. And, right. And I got, like, lobster with black bean sauce and... So, okay, if you come to New York, you don't have a lot of money to spend. Don't chase the Instagram shit. Go down the stairs, and you can go to Wohop, but if Wohop is crowded, just go, like, one store over to Hop Key and go down those stairs, and don't be intimidated by the fact that you might be the only person who kind of looks like you there. Go sit and just say, like, pick something that seems great. Pick one thing that seems adventurous. Pick one thing that's safe. You Honestly, for the, for the money you have in your pocket, you'll be able to get a great meal and you'll have a real New York um, experience. Now that's not anyone's cool list, but I just think it's still really delicious, you know? So if you've been listening, Brian is what we need more of people that are just giving you personal opinions about where to go because they're eating out and like they care about it. So I don't know how we get uh, compile this information where it's not on a blog. Like uh, you just got to go discover it yourself. Friends. I think the way you do it is friends. Like I'm going to send you when we're done. Like Sammy has an incredible list. I'm not going to post it anywhere, but he, because people ask him every single day. So he's made like a list with descriptions and it's really good. And like you friends, that's how you ask your friends. Um, you know, if you have a business, okay. If you're coming to New York and you have to do a business thing, Chisiamo is like, that's a great place to go for business. If you're younger and you want to go out late at night, go to Four Horsemen, right? That place kind of kicks ass. And then it depends what kind of food you're interested in. Have you, I mean, I still think like the cold fried chicken at Co is something I tell everybody to go try. It's just. It's really good. An awesome thing. <laughs> it's really, really good. I know. It's just an awesome thing. Um you know, I haven't been in a long time, partially because I hate bothering you. So, but um, uh, Co is great, and and people should go to Co. I still think that's like a very elite sort of a place. So, but like, what do you think? You know, if the twenty years ago New York was in this uh, sort of the Great Schism, right, uh, of awakening away from super high end dining, away from the French domination, um, where are we now? Right. And coming out of COVID, because the times I'm in New York or when I talk to people and the reason I think it's important to talk to New York, whether it still has its influence and, 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 and sway over the rest of the country like it used to, probably not. But it's still a good indicator of what's potentially to come elsewhere. Everyone I talk to, the chefs, people like you, there's confusion as to 
are we in a good place? Restaurants seem to be busier. What is actually opening up? What is the zeitgeist? Like, what's happening? I think at any night, at any time, if you're not trying to chase cool, you can eat a meal in New York that you'll want to tell a bunch of people about. Like, you can find something great because you can go to a place that's been doing something for a long time and just does it better than anybody else. There are places you can go where you can get a perfectly cooked piece of fish, skate. There's a place you can go where you can get um, a great steak. You can go to Noodle Town and still get these classic dishes or something to blow your mind. You know, man, I, you can go to Miliwa and still get the original kind of bao, right? A roast pork bun of the old school style. And if you've never had that, I mean, have you ever watched somebody eat that for the first time? <laughs> <laughs> Their f- whole face explodes. And like, so I don't think of that as exotic and neither do you, right? So I think friends, talking to friends about where they've really had something great. But I think there's still a lot of people who care. And I think that like, I guess along with that point of view thing you brought up, the other thing is really caring. So really caring about execution, really caring about delivering an experience for the people in the restaurants. And, you know, because I, I've been around for a long time, maybe I don't get the typical experience most of the time. That's why I love today at B. Corota. I just love just showing up earlier than anyone was there who would like, I know from somewhere. And I was just like experiencing it just like perfectly the way you would. And I was like, they care so much. They care so much to deliver this dish to me perfectly. Great restaurant. And it really is. If you haven't been, it's, again, one of those. New York's got so many of these restaurants that tourists and locals go, right? The Balthazar model, which is. Perfect. Yeah, right. They, we're, we're, we're to- yes, but I think, like, tourists will go on a Saturday night. The lunch thing. So just let's for a second talk about this. A lot of these places that are a hassle to go to at night, you can go at lunch and you can go at 5 o'clock. And don't worry about not, again, that's, I used to always, you know, people ask often, how do you become a regular at a place? And like, show up early, show up on the hours that people aren't there, show up often enough, someone will notice you, be nice, be appreciative of the chefs, say this was great. And you will be able to, you don't have to be like um, a quote unquote important person to become a regular at a place. You just have to be like, show up a lot and be nice, I think. I mean, you have a better perspective being a restaurateur than, than me. But what, what do you think? You just got to keep on going and earn, earn yeah. the powers, right? You got to put in the work like any, everything else. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about New York and I want to link it to, I'm still working on this in my head to what you're doing and, and the issues happening in Hollywood to some degree. Right. And sure. My 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 take on New York and not just New York, but just food in general is something I've been wrestling with is uh, and this is the it's not ineffable. But I think a lot of my peers, the people I'm talking to are still trying to wrap their head around what the fuck is going on. Right. Some restaurants are busier than ever. If you go to, say, Napa Valley, single thread, French laundry, you cannot get a reservation. And I think those ticket prices are going to go up to like. 1500 bucks in a couple years. You can't get a reservation at Laser Wolf. And by the way, it's great. Like, it's great, but you cannot get a reservation. I want, it's hardly worth mentioning. It's so hard. To right. Get. But, but that's, other- that, that's the separation is when I say experiential restaurants, right? I think we're headed towards this. If this is a spectrum, it's going to be whatever can be fast, immediate, 
cheap and then experiential. Experiential does not have to be super expensive. It has to be something that creates FOMO, whatever it is. Tatiana, right, does that. It's incredible food, but it's an experience. You're going to Lincoln Center and you're seeing dishes that you've never seen before. It's hard to constantly feed that engine because you feed that engine with a mixture of talent, technique, expertise, but also just situational and ephemeral coolness. Very few places then reach that level of the Balthazar effect. Via Corota has now reached that, right? Not every city has something like this, but where it's no longer being fueled by just being cool, it's now institution. And I think you have to take those out of consideration because those are experiential forever because you're never going to get in. It's part of the fabric of the city, right? Could you imagine New York without Balthazar? Fucking very difficult to do. Yes. Right? So really, I never think about Balthazar, but you're, I mean, but as you're saying it, I can picture these nights and why that place is so important. And I would be very sad if it didn't exist. You're so right. And a lot of that experiential could be food that is being served that is good, not great, with an ambiance. And a lot of the things that I was allergic to early on are now very in vogue. Ambiance, experience, decor, design, all of these things, I think, right? And my, my fear is what's happening to those restaurants that just do one or two things really well that are really good. What happens to Joe Jr.'s, right? When the audience has changed dramatically, right? The people listening to this are probably not going to go to Joe's Jr.'s. They're just not because it's not cool. Right. It's cool for locals, but not if you're a tourist. Yes. If you're a tourist and somehow you take a picture eating a cheeseburger (laughs) at Joe Jr., everyone's going to be like, what the fuck is that? But on the other hand, if you want to feel like you're an Edward Hopper painting, go to Joe Jr. at at night and sit there and and eat that thing. Well, but but I do think, okay, I've always been a little bit of an idealist about all this work stuff, all of it. Like, I do think truly delicious stuff. If something's amazing, I do think it cuts through. Like, I think there is a reason that Anthony, the more he strips his thing down, like that, you know, Massimo is flying to New York to come and sit and eat Anthony's pizza. It's not because it looks, it's not because that restaurant looks some way. It's because, by the way, he still only serves five pizzas. And it's because it's great. Um, and I do think that there are, um, there, there are these places and they're in certain kinds of food, I guess, where it doesn't have to have all the bells and whistles. I don't want to like, there's, a, I will say the, the thing you're talking about is the, I'm not going to ding this restaurant because I really like the front of house person, but there's a restaurant now that's in a high profile location where, you know, you've had places and it's like so over the top and it's just almost as if it's designed to just get these people in their late twenties to come spend their expense account. And so they can take pictures and it's hard to get in and it's gigantic. And it's like, it's designed from the external factors in, meaning it's like, how's the food look way before how's the food taste? And I think dumpling places fall prey. Like I'll sometimes see all these pictures of dumplings at some new dumpling listed place and I'll go and I'll be like, oh, that's not a, that sucks. That just, it's pink. You know what I mean? It's not, it, and, and so I, I agree with you. But on the other hand, man, 
there are still great places to get dumplings and great places to get a little bowl of But I'm, you know, pasta. you're idealistic. I'm always, unfortunately, Eeyore of, of the, of the yeah, moment. Yeah, 100%, and of course. And again, like, I'm just trying to make sense of culture at large and recognize what I think are potential patterns that you can apply all over the place. So FOMO... To me, I've been trying to wrestle with what is an experiential restaurant. I feel like most people can agree that experiential restaurants are going to be all the rage for the next five, ten plus years. But David, are you saying experiential? Anything can be experiential. Meaning that the food, wait, but are you saying that that means the food by definition is not? Some of those experiential restaurants can have mediocre food, right? (laughs) But can some of them have great food? Absolutely. Because what, what, what the, 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 the definition for me, the catalyst of it all is fear of missing out on something, right? It's supply and demand. New York sushi counter restaurants. Everybody knows about them, talks about them. Very few people get to go to them because they can't get it either because of reservation or it's just too fucking expensive. But if you do eat there, it's now cultural currency. It's now something you can have potentially over your friends or your coworkers or peers. I ate here. Look at what I'm doing. And some people are doing that really, really well, and some people aren't. But I don't know what the rhyme or reasons is, but it's the experience that to me is very similar to like, look, I'm watching the Knicks game courtside, right? That's never going to go away. Yes, I agree. But I also think what's never going to go away is because food is primal. It's the number one primal thing, right? Tied with the sex drive. Those things are the most primal, but food even more because you, it is like the thing that makes us survive. So when you eat something that blows your mind, taking away all the FOMO and all the rest of it, I think you will be drawn back to it and you will tell people. And so I agree. I'm, I'm as cynical as you about sort of like, you know, that place that I was describing and 40 other places that are just kind of bullshit, you know, but then you'll have this moment where, and I even hate to this place is so obnoxious in certain ways for so long. But the other night I was with Anna and we were walking around on the Lower East Side and we were saying hello to a friend and then we left and we were hungry and we just stumbled into Lucien and I got a steak up at Lucien at six o'clock. And you know, man, it was a perfectly prepared steak up and it's like, they don't, I don't know if they give a shit or not. They can't, it's in their bones. They can't help it. They're going to produce for you. It's obnoxious. I have no interest in being in that room really, except, you know, the guy who was sitting next to me came in from England. He was with his daughter and he was like, this fucking steak of love, huh? And I was like, yeah, dude, this is one of those places. Like this is one of these places that has been doing this for what, 30 years in this same corner. And there used to be movie stars coming in, doing lines off of each other's asses at the bar. And now it's, you know, people who stumble in, but they're still somehow that place is crowded. It's not on Instagram ever. And you can't, you know, it's totally crowded. If you're going there at seven, it's still crowded. But like, if you're coming to New York and you're like, I wonder what's like a good steak of pop. That's still one of the probably five or six best steak of pops you're going to eat in New York. When's miss- the last time you were there? That's been, it's been in. probably 10, 10 years ago, yeah. right? For sure. Yeah, but, me too. It had been like 10 years since I was there too. But again, my concern is not that Lucian is not relevant anymore to their fan base. 
but costs are going up. It's harder to staff things out. Everything becomes harder to operate. Oh, so is that kind of place, okay, you know way more about this part of it than I know. Like that kind of place couldn't, like sustaining that middle band of like, so not hard. middle band, but sustaining that thing where, like Donahue's or whatever, sustaining a restaurant that's a neighborhood restaurant, that's a quality neighborhood restaurant, consistent, your fear is that that shit goes away because it's all FOMO or super well, cheap. Well, no, what, and it, then, what is it? You're not identifying to a constantly new younger audience. So that band of customers right. that you have while constant is slowly shrinking day by day by day. Totally. We're dying off. Right. And you're totally right. So, yeah. so again, like everything is getting squeezed out. The middle is getting squeezed out. Is it going to happen overnight? No. Is this seem hyperbolic? Yes. But I don't think I'm necessarily wrong. And I do think this is a pattern that is affecting all forms and facets of culture. And so, like, yeah, it's either going to be cheaper, faster, delivered, whatever, right? Instantaneous. Also, I'll say this. Nobody wants us. Maybe nobody wants to take a pop, right? Maybe that's just something that's irrelevant. Exactly. I do want to mention one other place, though. I wrote this down to mention to you because if you haven't been here in a while. But Okonomi, which is this place in Brooklyn, think, Brooklyn Williamsburg, Greenpoint line kind of. Their breakfast is insane. I've had like, it. It's fantastic. And they also have a dashi store, I think, right next door. That's, yes. uh, that's again, what New York has that other cities probably won't. That just, breakfast, no. That break, like, it's worth, that place is worth getting in a fucking train or cab and going from Manhattan if you're visiting. Like, because that's a store, you will go and have that breakfast. It gives you all of it, right? Because nobody's eating that. So it's FOMO because you can take a picture of this incredible fish and this thing that you're getting for breakfast. It's also so delicious and they care so much and they're nice and you'll have tea and it's going to be a perfect memory for you to have. And so like, I would say Okonomi is a can't miss for it. It rings all those bells, but it's tiny. And like, you know, you wonder to yourself, I wonder like, how does that thrive? It's so small. And, and again, I, I, everyone talks about New York that I friends with or, or you, it's like just booming. You know, the restaurant scene is booming. Restaurants are busier than ever. Yeah. And I talk to, people and they're like i think i'm making less money than i ever before we're less profitable than ever before Why? not all restaurants Why is that? shit's just more fucking expensive man <laughs> across the board if that doesn't mean everybody listen i have friends that are doing way better than ever before but they're fucking outliers right um and again i don't know what the answer is but i think that it's it's a time for people in the hospitality industry to start asking themselves, like, is it okay for me to like be in this business for the long haul and then just go against the grain, which I was already doing, or, you know, how do I scale it? How do I do something different? Because it's, it's fucking hard. Never, I mean, ever, in some ways, Tatiana, Tatiana and Teresi are like Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yes, they delivered. They delivered on well, the and, promise. And that's what I mean. That's right. Like, how we consume that is not so different than how you consume film or television to some degree but, in terms but, of the, but we're not, but I'm not saying the name. I know, you know, the name of the restaurant I was, I'm not going to say the name of that other restaurant, but like the thing is, yes, Tatiana and Teresi delivered on the promise. Those are awesome. But every single week, some restaurant chain is opening a very hyped up place um, or, you know, some place that has, a small restaurant that people love decide to blow it out in some major place that gets the internet's attention. And it's not great. The remarkable thing that your friend, Rich Teresi and our friend Kwame did 
was, I mean, Rich is my pal too, but uh, through you, but um, that those guys did is they each are perfect. They, they like, I don't know. I view it as you, you know, you're the professional. So you see it from the other side, from me as close as I am to it. It's still, I'm on the other side of the magic trick. But what it feels like to me is those two guys cared a great deal about delivering something truly exceptional in their own names and in their own sort of like identity was so tied into what they were doing that they were just like, I'm going to will this thing to be fucking great. Amazing. And I, I, again, like, I don't know if anything I'm saying actually matches up, but again, to me, trying to understand this fucking impossibility of unraveling what the fuck is happening in the food world, I'm always trying to look elsewhere. And I don't think that I'm not trying any answers. Like, I think, look, I've had amazing meals at Nobu, but I don't think either of us would ever tell ourselves that Nobu is in the same conversation as Matsuhiso was. No, Nobu's like network news. It's always going to have <laughs> an audience, yeah. no matter right. what. Uh, but Nobu's, like, you can have a great night, a great meal at Nobu. Like, I'm so happy to go there anytime. But I'm not going to tell you that it's what the personal statement that Matsuhisa is. And look, that's what was so fun about um, eating at Major Domo is because that honey and butter... Bing. You know, Bing. You know, man. Like, you eat that and you go, all right, I know Dave says he's not involved and he's not really doing this, but you, like, Dave's taking it. But you eat that and you know that, that that's Dave Chang. Like, you just know that's your voice. That thing, that texture of the Bing, the honey and the butter, that's your voice. And that exists in the place where you turned your specific attention. Maybe for the last time that you want to do that. I don't know. Maybe in another few, like, but you decided to, for whatever reason, you wanted that place to be excellent, right? It mattered to you. But ultimately, Brian, like my my fear, again, like these are leaps of logic for sure. But like, I don't want the restaurants I love to wind up like some linear television channel that's not getting any love or anything like that. Like, I want anybody that's in the restaurant industry to fucking thrive. And I think a lot of people looking for answers and. If something happens and there's a resolution, which hopefully is sooner rather than later, I don't know if that sparks some idea, but everyone's looking for some spark, you know, about positivity around the corner. And I don't want to be or about this, but I'm always, I'd rather be right. I mean, I'd rather be wrong, but prepare. So. I know, I know. Look, man, I look at, again, not to like, okay, I look at, I look at certain ice cream places in New York that used to be when they had a truck and a store, I would, you would travel 40 blocks and suddenly it just flattens out and becomes mediocre and kind of dramatic looking. But then you got someone like Nicholas Morgenstern who is still that obsessive that he goes out of his mind. Like he changes the menu. He tastes everything. He will keep himself up for days on end, like Oppenheimer thin, to just fucking get, he put a flavor on Dave the other day, a peanut butter and Ritz crackers. That's what it's a peanut butter Ritz cracker thing. And like, I swear if I took you there and you ate it, you would go, okay, I have faith. Like not, you know, it's like, cause you eat it and you go, this took like, you'll know in a way that most people won't like how much ideation that took texture to get, to get, that texture exactly right, the flavor combo right, the salt right, like, right? You know, that's a hard, that's like a hard thing to pull off. And it's amazing. 
And um, like, but how does that work in the end? That store is huge. To, to your point, uh, Nicholas is great at business too. That thing's thriving. There are lines around the corner. But every time I go down there and I see lines around the corner, um, and I'm just like, what a liar I am because I cut the line. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just going to call myself out on it. Like, I know I'm a douche and I do. But uh, they come out. I don't really cut the line. It's just I won't have to wait on the line. It's complicated. But the point is that there's lines around the corner because it's amazing. And I just think. We're talking about Morgan are, Stern's ice cream yeah, in, in New if York. You, yeah. If you're willing to create something amazing, I guess that's where I'm a little bit optimistic or utopian and you're a little bit cynical or worried, not cyn- like worried about I'm worried. it. Like, I'm worried. I just think if you create something incredibly undeniable in movies or television or music or food, if it's really that great, what I've seen over a long period of time is if it's really that great, people will show up. But, uh, but you know, when guys like Ed Schoenfeld die, it really does make you go, oh, my God. Like, so now that was a that place was a jewel. Ed Schoenfeld and, of, of Red Farm, who, who passed of cancer uh, last year. And he was, uh, you know, one of the one of the food would be very different if he didn't exist. I only have gone, I've only gone in there one time because like uh, the connection got, we have to these places, what they mean. I'm sure that it's still like your friend helped launch that place. Right. So I'm sure that it's still very good, but the magic of that person walking around the restaurant, annoying as he could, so, you know, all the things, but it's like, that's what that you're supposed to feel there. And look, David, you might just be also talking about the passage of time, which is at one time you and I were in our twenties and early thirties. And we were taking on the city ourselves as young people doing this. And now we're on the other (laughs) side of it. And that also does affect the point of view, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, But I'm just, you know, I started this podcast before you came on trying to talk about like identifying talent, identifying greatness. How do you nurture it? How do you cultivate it? But I think ultimately I'm just, you know, trying to figure out some angle, not just for myself and my own businesses, but everybody I know. It's like, because I'm, I get a lot of inbounds. Like, what the fuck do I do? How do I do well, what this? Is the what do you think is the answer? Like, why do you think, because you study this, like, why do you think Sean and Missy were able to build what they built, like the way that they have, which is three places that are crowded all the time. Those places are crowded all the time. So, like, what did they do? And not in fame, not in places that are hip necessarily. Like, what did they do? Well, first of all, you have to have domain expertise, which Missy had. And Missy was a very talented chef, worked in Europe, ran a voce here in New York, also ran, um, no, the first version of it in Time Warner Center. And, like, Sean, who will say, we're talking about Sean Feeney, he was like, oh, I'm just a first-time restaurant. He's like, no, he was a very successful hedge fund guy. <laughs> that knew a lot about food and knew about pattern recognition and how to make deals happen. That's, he recognized talent. Well, like, he recognized Missy. He was like, Missy's very talented. Which is important because I think more and more and more, you need somebody that has the ins, knows how to make real estate transactions happen, get the best contracts possible to effectively help be the producer for that talent. It also happened that Missy was hyper-talented, just never had the right situation. So a lot of times... That doesn't mean that you're going to be successful, but it raises the percentage chance 
of that happening. So not a surprise to me. You know what I mean? And like they would have been successful if they did anything else too. Like that's just my opinion. And Sean was successful to be able to do that. And I think that's one of the actual new challenges for the restaurant world is people that are too fucking smart and too fucking talented are now the competition. <laughs> that's funny. Right. You got to deal with guys like Sean. And not only that, like celebrities are really the celebrity chef now. Right. Like the word, that's why you answered on, 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 on threads. It's like, I wanted to know like the story of it. I was like, Oh, well, people hate chefs, hate the term celebrity chef as a title. It's the fucking worst. We have the worst phrase for being good at your job <laughs> yes. compared to any other profession. And I, 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 I think that not only I have to, you have very smart people that could have been successful in any other career now cooking or in the restaurant industry, but celebrities are moving more units of food than any other chef. Selena Gomez, Travis Scott sold more fucking McDonald's shit than anybody else. They right. are all entities of the culinary world now. So the, the, the playing field's gotten a lot more crowded for, for chefs. I think yeah, it's I think harder. I answered you. I think I said, I think Chef Gordon came up with it. And yep. that may be wrong or right, but I'm pretty sure he came up with the idea of it anyway. Like the notion. No, he, he, did, he did coin it. So you were correct. Oh, good. Oh, that's great. I thought so. Because he figured those guys, he was like, these people are undervalued in the culture and decided to try to, you know, find a way to get them out in, into the culture, you know, two generations before you. Also, I can't, and I can't stop without mentioning Balud because that guy still is delivering for me, like the thing you were talking about where you can just guarantee yourself a really great meal. Like, you can still go to any of his restaurants, I think, and some are dressed down and some are dressed up still. And he's still going to. And I think this might be the only city in America now which has like that thing, right, um, where you could just go. And I mean, I guess there's one in Toronto and there's one down in um, Florida. But basically, there's five Daniel Blue restaurants in New York. And again, that's not hip. But if you like want to just experience while that guy's still alive. Sometimes I think about this, David, I sometimes think about the fact that we were alive when Miles Davis was alive. We're alive right now when Dylan's alive. And like, there is something about, I want to go see a living legend. Like if a living legend comes and plays in New York and I've never seen them, Robert Cray came through and I went and saw Robert Cray by myself. Cause I was like, I never saw that guy play live. I got to see Robert Cray play. And I do think it's the same. If you've never eaten a Daniel Balud restaurant, pick yourself up and go sit there and understand why that guy was the most important chef in the world for a number of years, you know. Danielle's been instrumental in my career, and I and I hear he's coming to LA, so you know he'll have another restaurant for the West Coast people to to he's enjoy. Also the sweet for me, he's an incredibly sweet person, I think, and and so smart, just so smart about just fully um, on. He's the opposite of manically depressed. He's manically high all the fucking time. I don't know how. That's, that's <laughs> perfectly said. I'll say one thing about Missy and Sean, by the way. Like, Lilia is really good. Like, Lilia and Missy are very good. If you want to go, if you're in Brooklyn and you want to sit at the bar and have pasta. They've go, rapidly achieved Balthazar status for Brooklyn and Williamsburg. You know what I mean? That's in a short really period of time. Well that is like the go-to place where you're like, I know I'm going to have a good meal. I know it's the restaurant that everyone's going to enjoy, whoever it is, whether it's my parents, work, whatever. So, you know, it's, people need to study what they're doing uh, way more. 
Yeah, the consider. Well, that's you know, you once said this to me, which is like the challenge of making it great every time. Um, and that's a big separator, isn't it, in that business? Meaning you got to be able to really deliver it every fucking time. And I think that's the hard. I don't even understand how you guys all do it. That seems impossible. <laughs> what you do is fucking impossible. Um, it really is. I mean, every time I'm with Brian, what I love most, which is why I'm looking at the clock ticking away, is whenever I'm with Brian and if it gets to a certain period of time at night, he disappears <laughs> he is fucking God because he you're just not a late, late person. Night owl, you're like, I, I got to go to bed and I don't give a shit how good this conversation is. I'm out of here. And you are really consistent at doing that. When I'm done, I'm done. But I, you're some, listen, man, you know, you're one of my favorite people. And like, that's, it's so one of the only good things about being older and being 57 is like, there are people that you know for 20 years. And like, there is something about knowing somebody for a long fucking time. And where you've been, you know, hey, I might have talked to you for a period of time. I mean, you and I have been very for a long time now in touch with each other. Well, but like there is something about uh, these dynamics of people that you've been through stuff with and talked to and shared things with, man. And, you know, we both, you know, I really have always just love what you do. And I think it's great that it starts from a place where we like what the other person does. But like the way your brain works has always been great. Um, and you're someone I would sit up and, and talk to, but, uh, you know, I think the more global thing is I don't fake the funk. Like I show up where I want to be. I never show up where I don't want to be. And if I think I'm not going to be good company anymore, I want to leave before it turns. And, uh, you know, but, but, but a restaurant, okay, this is great to kind of like a great restaurant that's run by great people, both in the front and the back of the house. They have that rare ability that a great movie does to make you forget the passage of time. Absolutely. They really do. And that is an incredible gift that we, in our businesses, when we nail it, we have the ability to give people this gift of, for a little moment, forgetting that we're all just marching toward death and that time is passing. And like when you are in a restaurant and the company's great, and the food is amazing. And, you know, you take that bite where everybody goes like, what the fuck just happened? That is incredibly rare. And I guess that's why I'm optimistic because somewhere somebody is sitting there thinking about a dish and they're thinking about, I want to do something better than David Chang did. And I want to do something better than fucking Kwame. And like, they're wanting to dazzle us. The problem is, you know, you got to eat like a lot of mediocre meals to find... <laughs> That's why I want people to just follow your lead so they could just sort of skip over the mediocre. Yeah, you know, I, I, I just really think the world of you, you're one of the best truly gourmands out there. And, you know, I could talk to you forever and we do, this is just like a normal conversation. But like one of the things besides making some of the TV and film that I've devoured religiously in my life right and you may not know all the. there's probably a good chance one of your favorite things you've ever watched is something that you and david have made just Thank it's you. too too much uh last season of billions is coming out can't believe that's happening that's a whole nother conversation but like what i always love about you brian besides the food besides your sort of history is that you're always trying to give back whether it's like hey practice you know meditation or this is how you should 
be a screenwriter or this is how I was an A&R executive. One of the things I feel like we're going to try to do uh, moving forward is like this, this concept of so you want to be. And I know you get a lot of questions and I know you address it quite a bit on social media. Whatever the platform is, I think a good chunk of your social media presence is giving back to the world of like this is how you should do it. This is how I've done it. This isn't the right time or place, but if someone was saying, hey, Brian, my son wants to become a screenwriter, what would you tell them? So you want to be a screenwriter. So, no, it's, this is a fine place for it. This is the same kind of unsatisfying answer that you would give. But, it is, but to the person who's the real thing, it is the satisfying answer, which is there really isn't a hack. There really is not a hack. The only, and the only hack is to do it with just an incredible amount of discipline and focus and rigor and to do it every day and to, so you can like be, all right, I'll speak. You can globally be a perfectionist, meaning your end result could be you want to create something that's um, as, as perfect as it can be, but your first draft, your first pass, the first try at a recipe won't be perfect. And you know, I had this, I'll just, I'll bring it to food. You know, you invited me one day to come with you to one of your restaurants to um, test a series of dishes that you were putting, you had an idea you assigned, you were like, try this. And watching you, it was your idea. Like this was your idea for a dish and something, one of them was great. And one of them you weren't as happy with and watching you beat up your own idea. Um, and like, all right, no, we're going to do it this way. Take this out, change that. Uh, it's not that kind of caviar. It's this kind of caviar. This is the way the chicken should be um, shown to the room. This is the way, um, instead of, you know, make sure there's lettuce with it, but also this other thing. And it, and it's like uh, our urge as creators is, is, and it has to do with our childhoods, everybody's childhood is this, like, you know, we, we, we want, if it comes from us, we want it to be great. And we want it to be appreciated right away. But what people who are able to work in any kind of endeavor like yours or mine know, what we know, is that it's very, very rare that it comes out right the first time or the second time or the tenth time. And so being unwilling to quit and then being uncritical enough to like produce the work, get it out, and then critical enough to make the work as good as you possibly can before sharing it. So make lots of versions of the dish. But don't fucking put that dish on the menu until you know it's as good as you can get it. And that's exactly the same fucking thing as in what I do. It's like, write that first draft. Get that first draft out. You have to. Write it. Get the draft written. And then put it away for two weeks. And then read it like you're a reader, not a fucking writer. And realize what sucks about it. And tear it apart. And then do it again. Because that's... And watch... And like with... Why'd you go to Japan? Whether you knew why or not, you you experienced through your eyes, you tasted all the stuff and you had these realizations. And it's amazing. The first season of mine, I think, goes into this and also Ugly Delicious does like you walked into a convenience store and decided, wait, this is OK. Why is this great? This would be shitty in America. Why is this so delicious? OK, something doesn't have to be fancy for it to be delicious. They just have to really care about what they're making. And their audience is discerning. So they know in order to sell it, it has to be good because they'll go to the convenience store next door. 
it's, it's no different, David. It's the exact same thing. It's like, watch great shit. Try to understand why it's great. Don't fake it. Figure out what you're supposed to make. Meaning, you know, you worked in French restaurants. Ultimately, you are able to apply some of those techniques to what you did, but that wasn't the food that spoke to you in a way that you wanted to present it. Even if you thought at first, that's the most elevated kind of cuisine. At a certain point, you were like, well, I can't, I'm not doing that. That's not me. And it's the same thing. Like someone might think, I want to be Chris Nolan, but you know what? Maybe you're really Seth Rogen. And so if that's what really you love, that's a hell of a realization. <laughs> to, to want to be Christopher Nolan, like, oh, I'm Seth Rogen. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, Seth Rogen has a pretty great life. He's hyper talented and he works like a motherfucker. So, um, yeah, man, like I, I love your, your, your tips and I've always watched them because I find them to be applicable in my life. So, and, and, and clearly you made that jump from being an A&R executive to being one of the best screenwriters around and producers of content and director, et cetera. So it's like, all right, I think people can definitely listen to you about your tips of what they should be doing, whether you're going to be a screenwriter or not. Yeah, it's all, listen, man, if you have to do this stuff, you have to do it. And if you're called to it, just be, just do it. Oh, also I'll say, okay, one little really super practical tip. Don't. In your life, you definitely have like four or five people who you know are kind of the people who are skeptical of you or the kind of people who kind of chip away. Maybe they're family members. Maybe it's a cousin. Maybe it's like your mother's friend. Don't tell them because telling them is just defeating yourself. Just be really thoughtful and careful about who you share your dream with and don't share your dream with dream killers. Share your dream with people who support you. Um, that You can certainly get when it's the right time to get constructive criticism, that's totally different, right? Believe me, there are times like, um, there have definitely been times where you have said to me, is that good? Go to that, is, you were in that restaurant, tell me the truth. And I'm gonna tell you the truth because you're ready for it. You're prepared for it. Your feet are under you. You're a professional and you're ready. And but, Brian has let me have it sometimes and I, I enjoy it. Yeah, well, not in a dicky way. No. I'm going to tell you the truth. If something, because you, because you I know, value your opinion, you want to know if it's something's missing, you're going to want to know it's missing. Right. But you wouldn't do that too early. Like you're not going to do that when you're first, uh, the very first time you're ideating something, it's a different level of conversation. Um, but my favorite is like that time I went to noodle and you hadn't been in in a while. And I was like, dude, that oxtail dish that they have, they made it. It's incredible now. Because they, they'd made this oxtail and rice thing. And I remember, oh, and the Tatiana one is, so, oh, you'll really love the one of Tatiana. It's different, but like a cousin, it's bigger. It's much, it's a, you know, it's a much different sort of proportional thing. And the rice is different. It's a different kind of rice. But when I had that oxtail, when it was finally incredible, I remember I ate that thing and I called you and I was like, dude, that thing is amazing. It's always great to get a text from Brian because out of the blue, he's going to let you know if he tasted something great. And it doesn't even you're a restaurant. And he does this with all the chefs that he's friends with. So it's awesome. And he is the patron saint in, in so many ways. And Thank here's you. the thing. You know who's carrying on your legacy is really Sammy, your son. So, My son is who, carrying it on in that way. He's out there and, they're, and doing it. Um, he's better than me in all sorts of different <laughs> ways. But uh, like, I miss your kids. You know, we, I, I got to getting to, you know, be there with Hugo and, and watch him eat and stuff. It was like a year and a half ago. Two, like and then your the wife is like I maybe the biggest fan of my kids, and that's the cutest thing in the world. So she's, she's the best. Amy's um, amazing. So it's Grace. Dave, it's great to talk to you. And um, 
Come to New York. You got to like come and hang. I know. Just I know. Come for like three days. I know. I, I, I promise you. Without 25 meetings and shoots and things and just come and like, um, like we should go to Okonomi and have breakfast. How fun would that be? Can I be honest? And we're going to end. I, not being in New York is it's 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 weird being back. I know. And it's in a lot of ways it hurts. It hurts I know. so much. I understand that. And I you know it it sucks in a lot of ways too. So oh, you being an outsider in the city is so weird. Yeah. Right? Because you were the I mean you were like the king and and now you've you still are. I mean you still have three of the most whatever. But, but it's right? it's just different and especially post pandemic everything is just different. So I'm I'm working through a bunch of stuff because New York was my life for 25 years and it's not but for as a friend like that you haven't gone to like you got to come to Teresi like you have I to know. do that. I know I texted Rich I you know it's a lot because here's the other thing is I've given up a lot of trying to push the envelope in that regard I know and doing that is like there's not just me. There's many chefs that I'm friends with, including some that are pretty easy to find, like know who I'm talking about. New York to me, what makes it so beautiful is the struggle for power, right? And, and relevance. Yes. And that power is legitimately the best way to, 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 to like distill it is Gollum and Lord of the Rings. And when I'm there, I just get these whispers like, oh, I can do that. I can do more. I can do this. And I have to remind myself that even if you're at the top of that mountain, it, it doesn't mean you're fucking happy. <laughs> uh, yeah, because the greater, but the, the greater place to get to the other side of that is to be, um, you know, Viggo Mortensen in the movie Aragon or whatever, to just get to the place of knowing you are who you are. And there's not a restaurant you can walk into in New York that doesn't know they owe you a debt of gratitude. Or that doesn't know that you're one of their chosen sons if it's blued or something. Wow. But and that's still no man, and that's a real thing. I understand it. Like I don't like going to someone else's, and now I don't mind it so much. But I'd say periods of my life I didn't enjoy going on someone else's movie set when I was in a phase where it wasn't like clicking along as much, or where I was like stepping back. Like I, so I get that. Like you're not currently have a restaurant that's your thing that you're pushing. If you did, you'd love to be in New York because it would fire you in the right ways. So I get that. On the other hand, you would be so happy if you walked into those two restaurants, if you walked into Tatiana and you walked in to, first of all, if you walked into Tatiana, you would be like, I understand every single thing <laughs> Kwame's going through right now. And you could put your arms around the kid, which would be great, I think. Um, and, uh, because you're uniquely qualified to understand what it is to have accomplished this impossible feat. And I think if you saw what Rich did, you would be like so happy for your old kitchen mate to have like stepped back from this corporate thing and went, wait, I'm a chef and I'm going to make the best restaurant I know how. Cause he really is there on the pass, man. He's looking at every day. I mean, I guess not every, every time I've been there, I've been there six times. He's been on the pass all six times. I, lo- I love it, and I, I I just love that, and I love that he didn't move to South Beach. <laughs> Are you going to have – has he been on the pod since he opened? No, listen, I can ask a lot of my culinary chef friends, and I choose not to, right, because, you know, maybe one day. But, you know, I don't know. Every, everything in my life is in transition, and, and for better or worse, man. And 
you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I understand also if you have one, if you, the blanket policy is better than suddenly you have three people on, then you're no, insulting I, 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 I want to. I, I, I know. I, I, I can't communicate it. Anyway, uh, I, you got stuff to do, and please Thanks, give my, my, my best to the family, and thank you for, for, for joining us. Give my love to everybody. Oh, and you too. should listen to Brian's podcast, The Moment, which is fantastic, and he gets the coolest guests. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, and uh, hey, restaurant people in New York, if you don't know me, look, Dave says on the patron saint, uh, you should be welcoming me into your place. We just pissed off Jonathan Prince so much. I love it. <laughs> well, we love Jonathan Prince is our buddy who also was going to Momofuku Noodle Bar. I almost said his name three different times. I love I that guy. He's one of my closest friends. And Jonathan, uh, yes, you went to Noodle Bar also, but like just I was there a little bit before. All right, Dave, I'll talk to you soon, buddy. See you, buddy. Bye. Thank you, Brian. Again, check out his podcast, The Moment, and again, Billions last season, and he's worked on all kinds of stuff. And I, Lord, I, I know he's talked to Simmons about it. getting rounders too would be fantastic. I wanted to rephrase one thing when I was talking about changing your chef name out of the handle to not telling people you're a chef or a cook. Three, I think the better way to phrase it is. Don't put on a fucking recipe that is trying to be cool, right? That is of the moment, trying to be relevant. I think that's only going to fucking end terribly. So I think that's the best way for me to describe it. I want to ask Corey one thing. He mentioned in the break one of his biggest pet peeves. What was that, Corey? Yeah, so I guess for people that don't know, I, I head up the Ringers video team. And so when people are applying for jobs on the Ringers video team, uh, there's just resume red flags and I'm sure that you've gone through the same thing. Uh, but one of them is when people say I'm a filmmaker and, and this is, you know, usually coming from people that are 21, 22 years old, either in college or just out of college. And, uh, I get it. Cause that, you know, I think to some extent I was there, I was that kid and I was like, I'm an, I'm an artist. Like I'm a capital A artist. Um, but that's not, that's not what the job is. You know, it's, it's producing and editing and, and shooting and just kind of showing up to work and making high quality stuff. It's, it's not about how can I imprint my artistic sensibility onto this thing necessarily. So I, I think that's an indicator off the bat that, Hey, maybe this isn't the right thing, but there's, there's other stuff too. Like there was a resume once where uh, someone just said they were an Oscar winner and didn't elaborate. <laughs> and I thought that was great. I mean, it could be your local Oscar deli <laughs> yeah, yeah. award. I don't know. I mean, do you relate to that? Like when you, what are your red flags when you see? I understand the need to call yourself a chef. I understand the marketing to be able to do so, especially when people are like, well, I didn't have a TV show or anything like that. I was like, well, no, I, I think part of that is the point of view and calling yourself a chef. You really paint yourself into a corner that that's the only thing you're going to be able to be when, you know, which is why I think, being a chef, you should take more of a liberal arts approach and never just say that's what you're going to do. So, yeah, I, but nobody has director, filmmaker, at filmmaker, David Chang. You know what I mean? I, I, I just, there's just certain things about being a cook in this world that are just so fucking stupid. And too many of my friends have chef in their fucking Instagram or Twitter handle or whatever title. And that drives me fucking insane. I can't take it anymore. I'm just coming out of the closet and say, you guys have to fucking change your goddamn handle. Stop it. You're better than this. You have better taste than this.
And now everybody knows you're fucking chef. So drop the fucking title. There's a couple things I want to do today that we're not going to get into. One of which was trying to integrate a word of the day and, you know, gave me events. And I'm not going to do that word. That's a fucking terrible word, you know. Events. Because it basically is evidence. It's not evidence at all. What? What are you talking about? Has anyone heard of the word or used the word events in their life? I, it's made up. It's to reveal the presence of a quality or feeling, right? Like, so that's, it's, it's, you could have used it so many ways today. No, I, I think that if somebody used the word events in their title, that's actually worse than having chef in your fucking social media handles. Yeah, we're iterating. We're iterating. Okay. Events. <laughs> I'm going to events. It just sounds bad. You're it's like having a terrible jersey number on your fucking jersey. Dave, you're evincing how you feel about the word of the day. Okay. Oh, one last thing we'll prove to do it. Uh, talk about it and we'll get out of here. I love urban legends, and there's something that I've really admired of the story, and Yuna told me, well, that's not true. Let me tell you. I want to have more urban legends. I love fucking urban legends. These things that are apocryphal based on a true story, maybe not be true, but are still potentially inspirational. And I'm going to just quickly distill something. When I was studying in London, the only college, uh, the only grade that I, that wasn't like a D or a C because of attendance was um, London British architecture. My professor there said, Christopher Wren, again, put into context that I'm a shitty student and I can barely pay attention to anything. Why I would remember this correctly, who knows? So maybe I'm creating the urban legend. Christopher Wren, who was the architect mathematician that rebuilt St. Paul's Cathedral and all of London. Long story cut short, there's also Windsor Castle, but I'm almost positive she says St. Paul's Cathedral and like the 200 year cleaning of it realized that the columns in it stopped like half an inch short because he would always proclaim that he was a mathematical genius and he didn't need pillars. And the reason I'm telling you this story is I think you can find inspiration in any fucking place, even in a story that's not fucking true. Like I love the obstinate, absolute refusal to bend on your fucking, your, your job where he's like, yeah, okay. You want pillars? I'll put them in there. And then they all stop half an inch short from the, the cathedral top, right? The ceiling itself. And I've always told that story and I didn't even know that it wasn't even fucking true. So, you know what? Let's just judo move this and just be like, I just want to start telling more fake news stories, fake urban legend stories. So send them in at majordomomedia.com or ask Dave at majordomomedia um, because you should do some homework on Christopher Wren. You probably never even heard of him. And I am actually mortified that I've told this story to many, many people. And you know, that, you know what? It's not true. So I'm going to tend to believe that my professor, this is what I, this is how, what I've already already processed. My professor knew the truth. She told the class the truth, but it was too powerful of the truth for the history of the books to have such a fucking monumental mistake. And who the fuck is going to verify that? They're going to climb the top of the St. Paul's Cathedral, one of the greatest cathedrals in the world. They're going to get access to look at the top. Nobody's going to verify that. So I'm going to believe that it's true. 
And all the information out there is false. So it's not false news. I just told you the fucking truth. The pillars at Windsor Court Castle and St. Paul's Cathedral stop half an inch short of the ceiling. This has nothing to do with anything, which is why it's so important to talk about. Give us five stars.